If you're hustling all the time, if you're looking for shortcuts, if you're doing things to other people, well, then you're busy all the time. And you get little bits of progress, so it feels good. But you don't have to listen to the noise in your head. And you don't have to sit quietly, and you don't have to confront the fear of possibility because you're busy all the time. And so there are plenty of people who are apparently succeeding at least on the surface with their hustle. The problem is they're so busy being busy all the time, they're not really succeeding. Welcome to the Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with the art of humanity. Now, here's this week's episode. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening, as always, to the show. This is episode 40, and thank you for the glowing reviews of my podcast. One of the things that I love the most about having this podcast besides the ability to make an impact in the lives of my listeners, is that I love how I can meet people in real life who inspire me, who then inspire others. Rima the Jungle Girl is one example of this. She's someone that I met in person, then I interviewed her on episode 39 of my podcast, and she just left a review. She writes, I love how many topics you tackle and how open you are to going deep. It's super refreshing. I can't wait to hear more. Thanks for having me on your show, and I hope to see you soon. Thanks so much, Rima. And if you like this podcast, leaving a five-star review on iTunes would mean so much to me and help me to gain momentum. It only takes a few seconds, so if you can go over right now to iTunes and leave a review, I'll maybe even give you a shout-out in my next episode. This season focuses on empowering the next paradigm of creativity. And one of the topics I'm exploring in this podcast and in my next book is creativity and consciousness. Today, I'm so excited to talk with someone that aligns with my mission of truth, integrity, and purpose, Seth Godin. In this conversation, we dive into so many different topics. Some of them include why hustling is a form of hiding, how to look into the eye of what matters, how to get better clients. We also discuss why having a traditional book publisher will not make you famous, how to build an asset as a writer, why memes are genes, and how this aligns with Darwin's rules. After the interview, I have some thoughts as to why Seth resonates so much in the world today, and it has to do with the masculine and feminine consciousness. If you want to nerd out with me, hang around until the very end. I'm so excited to bring you this episode. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the Art of Humanity, where we explore creativity and consciousness with artists, leaders, authors, and entrepreneurs. Today, I'm so excited to talk with someone that aligns with my mission of truth, integrity, and purpose, Seth Godin. Seth is an entrepreneur, author of 19 books that have been bestsellers around the world. His newest book is called This Is Marketing, which is already a Wall Street Journal, Amazon, and New York Times bestseller. He's been on the internet since 1976, invented permission-based email, founded two significant net companies, and he defines his working life by the many projects he's launched, the failures he's learned from, and the people he's taught. By focusing on everything from effective marketing and leadership to the spread of ideas, Seth has been able to motivate and inspire countless people around the world. Hi, Seth. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on The Art of Humanity. Well, it's a pleasure. The work you're doing is important, and I know it can be thankless at times. So count me in as one of your cheering fans. 
Wow, thank you so much. And I just want to say thank you for your body of work over the years. You've made such a tremendous impact on my life, and it's such a sincere honor to connect with you. Well, let's see what happens. Here we go. Something could happen. I've used your advice over the years, which has given me the courage to do things that may not work. More recently, I've been saying no, specifically saying no to the time-based model of productivity. It's really a battle between hustle, which is the ego, and alignment, which is the soul. In the interview that you did with Tim Ferriss, you discuss how our economy and our soul aren't fulfilled by hustle. They're fulfilled by something that's never been done before. And this something can't be quantified. Doing more and quantifying every aspect of your life is not the point in today's world. I believe in this wholeheartedly, but this is a lot easier in theory than in practice. How do you make this work when the status quo of society is still focused on the hustle? Wow, what a great question. I guess I'd start off by pointing out that hustle is a form of hiding and that the alternative is frightening because it involves so much white space and so much responsibility. Here's what I mean. If you're hustling all the time, if you're looking for shortcuts, if you're doing things to other people, if you're always looking for what you're going to get, well, then you're busy all the time and you get little bits of progress. So it feels good and you're busy all the time. But you don't have to listen to the noise in your head, and you don't have to sit quietly, and you don't have to confront the fear of possibility because you're busy all the time. And so there are plenty of people who are apparently succeeding at least on the surface with their hustle. The problem is they're so busy being busy all the time, they're not really succeeding. And there are two alternatives. One alternative is to hide by doing nothing, to hide by sitting still in your corner for months or years on end. I'm not interested in that. But the other part, the part where you're not hiding, where you are exposing yourself by forcing yourself to look right into the eye of what matters, means that you won't be apparently as busy, but you will get a lot more done. Mm, that's a beautiful answer. Looking into the eye of what matters. Wow. So what you do for a living is you notice things and then you write about them. And I want to talk more about looking into the eye of what matters because a lot of my work in the world is around content marketing. So I was curious. I googled Seth Godin and content marketing and a post popped up. Uh-oh. <laughs> a post popped up from a teleseminar from 10 years ago that you did with the Content Marketing Institute, in which you said, you must make a connection to your customers and get new customers by focusing on their true pain points and healing them with information. And then I googled Seth Godin and healing to see what you wrote about on this topic. And there's a cryptic post from 2006 that simply says, heal thyself with nothing else. So I really want to underline that word, healing. Are the best marketers today those who know how to provide information in a way that heals? Okay, well, first I need to raise a flag here because content marketing with a capital C and a capital M, the version of it that I have a problem with is people who get paid by the word and by the click to come up with banal and vapid things that search engines will find that don't really say anything, that use the BuzzFeed magic formulas to somehow connive people into giving their attention over for not much in exchange. And in an interview a long time ago, I said content marketing is the only marketing that's left. I did not mean that. Okay. What I meant was the content of what we do, the meat 
or if you're a vegan, the grain <laughs> of the essence of the change that we make, the real stuff, that's marketing. The spin and the hype and the promotion, that's not marketing. That's spin and hype and promotion. So what I'm trying to say, and I should have chosen much more carefully because my words have been uh, misquoted many times without them changing the words, just the meaning, is if you are hiring people or you are being hired to be a cog in the word machine, I think you could do better with your time. On the other hand, if you can use your images, your words, your beliefs, your ability to see others, to help them get to where they want to go, to become more complete, to dance with their fear, then that is a higher calling. And I am all in favor of that. 100% agree. And I, I don't do that word um, per minute type of thing or anything of that nature, mostly because of a lot of what I've read about your work and really seeing the big picture of the humanity and really writing for the human engine optimization instead of search engine optimization, as I like to call it. You're so eloquent in your writing about this. In your recent book, This Is Marketing, you write, the shameless pursuit of attention at the expense of the truth has driven many ethical and generous marketers to hide their best work, to feel shame about the prospect of being market-driven. That's not okay. If you step inside most marketing agencies today, they're going to want the short-term, cringe-inducing email blasts. They're going to want you to write a blog post in 30 minutes. And they don't want to focus on the long-term approach of meaning and genuine connection. How do you stand your ground in a world that's driven by that ego-based model of mass reach? Well, you mentioned two groups of freelancers there. You mentioned the marketing agency and the people who work for them. And in both cases, they're freelancers, not entrepreneurs, because they are not building an institution bigger than themselves. They're getting paid when they work. They're getting paid for their results. And the thing is, if you want to become a happier freelancer, a more profitable freelancer, a freelancer with more leverage, you cannot work more hours. You cannot find more shortcuts. It's impossible. The only way to do it is to get better clients. And if you get better clients, they will demand you do better work and they will pay you more for it. You will be able to do better work on behalf of things you believe in, which will get you even better clients. So I would begin with the marketing agency and say, if you're the marketing agency that's claiming you have to do all these shortcuts and bottom fishing because your client demands it, go get better clients. And then I would say to the freelancer who wants to work for the marketing agency that has lousy clients, get a better marketing agency. Because the fact that this is the only work you could get is no excuse. Because if you keep racing to the bottom to get that work, you're never going to get a chance to do the work you really ought to be doing. Such a great answer. So it's not about racing to the bottom. It's about getting better clients. How would you get better clients today? I know that you stopped doing consulting, but if you were out there trying to get better clients today, what would your approach be? So rule number one is you never work for free for someone you hope will pay you, no matter what you do. Rule number two is treat different people differently. And we can do that now much more easily than we ever could before. So when I put those two rules together, if I was 24 years old and starting out, what I would do is I would find causes I believe in, and I would find candidates I believe in, and I would find charities that I want to help, and I would work for them for free. And I would use my position as a donor to demand 
that they accept great work. And I would do great work that raised millions of dollars. And I would do great work that helped people get elected. And I would do great work that changed the conversation. And if I did that, then my phone would ring. And when people called me saying, how do we get some of that great work? I would charge them a lot of money. And if they didn't want to pay a lot of money, I would give them the phone numbers of my competitors and say, by all means, hire someone who's racing to the bottom. But when you're ready for this work, I'm ready to do it for you. And I think if you can honestly produce great work for the kinds of people who will let you do great work, it's quite likely that the word will get out and your phone will ring and you will be seen as the one and only and it will no longer be a race to the bottom for you. This is something that you need to be able to sit with yourself with. Like you need to be someone that's okay in that white space. And you're someone that sits in that white space often. You don't go to meetings. You don't watch TV. You don't even drink coffee. Uh, you even describe your meditation practice as messy. Yet you're a prolific creator and you get so much done. It's a really, it's non-conventional and you've really created a new paradigm and approach to life and work. So tell me what sitting with that empty space, I know that you write a lot about the emotional layers of fear. Do you still sit with the emotional layer of fear when you come across that blank canvas? Only if it's a good day. <laughs> I can fake it for days at a time mm -hmm. now where it looks like I'm busy and I haven't got anywhere near the things that frighten me. But deep down, I know I'm faking it. And so after a day or two of that, I calm myself on it and I find a way to make myself uncomfortable mm -hmm. again. Right. So if I'm answering, I looked the other day, I've answered 174,000 emails personally, wow. one at a time. If I'm answering emails, I'm hiding. If I'm answering emails, it looks like I'm doing my job, but I'm hiding. And if I spend too much time doing that, I realize it and I take a deep breath and I back off and I say, here's a white piece of paper. And I use real paper. I'm very particular about the kind of paper I use. What and kind of paper do you use? I have to ask. I'll just, well, it changes. It just, all that matters is I'm particular about it. Because that's part of your layers of getting to that blank canvas, correct? Exactly. It's part, you know, mise en place is its own reward. Uh, mise, mise en place is what chefs call it when they have all the little containers of spices and herbs and everything set up in a row. If you do your mise en place right, cooking is way easier than if in the middle of making a doll, you got to run around looking for the cinnamon. Mm -hmm. And so I will spend time on mise en place. And people who come to my office notice that the patina has a patina, that there's a place where only certain things happen. And I don't do other things in that place. Because if I walk into the place, the mise en place tells me what I'm there to do. And so if I open one of those pads, and I'd like to say that Muji discontinued the pad I used for the last two years, so I'm in between pads right now. Mm -hmm. uh, if I open one of those pads, I know there's only one thing I'm supposed to do with that pad. And this is all superstition on my part. This doesn't mean other people should do it this way. But the universal lesson is this. Uh, Gabe, the bass player, had a great post the other day. And he said, what would happen if every rock concert, every musical event had a 1 to 10 score on it when you went to buy tickets? And it could be a 3, it could be a 7, it could be a 10. 10 the best. He said, what would happen if that was required? And he said, what would happen if the number was provided 
by the musician herself. The question he was asking musicians is, what number would you give your next concert? And of course, lots of people say, well, I'll give it a 10 because I want to sell tickets. And then he says, okay, so honestly, tell me, is it really a 10? Is it really a 10 compared to any concert you've ever been to in your whole life? Or if we're going to be honest with each other, are your concerts more like a six? And if your concerts are more like a six, does it make you feel comfortable to give them a four just to give people more than you promised? Or are you okay giving them an eight and acting like a fraud? Because this gets to the heart of what it is to be a freelancer. Because a lot of people who do what you do say they're the best in the world at it. But they know they're not. And they're blaming the client or they're blaming their situation, but they know they're not. And the reason they're not is because they haven't sat down with a white pad of paper and put themselves into a position where they have to look at what matters and decide to act as if, as if they were doing the work that deserves to get a 10. Hmm. That's a great answer. It really comes down to being honest with yourself and being able to sit with that blank canvas and really knowing who you are. And I took your definition of permission marketing means that you need to sit with those that blank canvas for long enough to know that what you create actually brings meaning and value into the world. So when I read about permission marketing, I decided to take it to an extreme. I stopped saying yes to speaking opportunities where I'd be flying across the country at large networking events without getting the permission of everyone in the audience to speak. Instead, I'm focusing on building this podcast. This podcast is my art, and this approach feels so intuitive to me. I realize that speaking and podcasting are not mutually exclusive, but when you look at the big picture of how we can connect and inspire today, how does podcasting compete with the somewhat outdated model of the speaking industry? Oh, I guess I have. Maybe I look at it differently. So here's the deal. I think if you go to a conference, there is a very overt permission that you are granting the conference organizer to juxtapose you with strangers who you are hoping will be even more interesting, better connected, more motivated, and smarter than you are, as well as put in front of you speakers and activities that change the way you see the world. I think that's part of the deal. That's what you paid for. So that's pretty overt permission in my book. It's really rare for someone to walk out on a speech that I give, but it's very common for people to delete emails that other people send them. So I think the permission is pretty solid. And the thing about speaking is it's extremely expensive as a way to deliver information. That if you just sent everyone a memo, you could save them the airfare, you could save them the hotel, and you could save them the time. Because the ideas in a 45-minute speech can be boiled down into a memo you can read in five minutes. So if that's the case, why are we even bothering with this? Because we invented speaking before we had airplanes and email and word processors. So why do we keep doing it? And I think the reason we do it is because two other things happen in a public speech. One the organizer is sending a message to the audience to say, you are special enough and we are wealthy enough that together we were able to hire somebody, somebody smart and successful, to drop what they were doing and come see us in real time. And that's the reason I don't do video talks hardly ever, 
because it undermines that. And then the second, yeah, the quality gets lost. Well, it's not just the quality; it's the expense on my part that it feels disrespectful to the audience to not leave my office and show up by video, even though it's so much more efficient. Mm-hmm. Second thing is, we are saying to the audience, "I could have carefully crafted a memo. I could have edited this podcast with an inch of its life, but instead, here I am live." bleeding on stage in front of you. So I was on stage today in front of 400 people and I forgot Frederick Taylor's last name. <laughs> and oh, no. it really bothered me that I forgot Frederick Taylor's last name. It only took me about, I don't know, six seconds to remember it, but it felt like 16 minutes. Oh no. <laughs> and the idea that people were in the audience live with me bleeding on stage, I think captured something that I can't deliver to them in a podcast. On the other hand, the idea that hundreds of thousands of people, while they're working out or doing whatever they're doing, their laundry, can hear a well-produced podcast at no cost, no incremental cost to the podcaster, no cost to the recipient, is magic. So they both have a place. But I'm not ready to say you don't have permission. You have permission anytime. If I'm in the room, please go give a speech. Yeah, I guess my question was more geared towards that if you're not the keynote speaker or the only speaker at this networking event, then people may not necessarily want to hear you if you're speaking. But maybe that's just showing my um, naivety, I guess, around the, the speaking events because you are, you know, obviously a prolific speaker. So, um, no, I don't think you're showing naivete. I think what you're showing is the result of 5,000 years of misogyny compounded by the fact that all of us are frauds, <laughs> right? If I was a heart surgeon and I had successfully opened up people's chests and saved their lives, then I would feel like you could call me a life-saving heart surgeon. But for me to get up on stage and speak, there's got to be people better than me. There's got to be. But in that moment, all I can do is the best version of me I know how. And the ability to perform in real time, make it interesting to me and to them, to craft something in unison with the audience, I love doing it even if they don't know who I am. I love doing it especially if they don't know who I am. You know, so today was a bunch of bankers. And I would say two-thirds of the people in the room had never heard of me. (laughs) Wow. And the first 30 seconds arms folded, people leaning back. It was the worst room set up of round tables, so people sort of half turned away. And within eight minutes, they got they were on my team. Within eight minutes, they got the joke, and we were together, and we were rolling, an art form, and I'm glad I could do it. And I wish I could do it in New York all the time, but I hate getting on airplanes, so I don't do it that often, 20 times a year, 15 times a year, but I treasure it. Absolutely. And Art is showing up, bleeding on a stage, and we want to show the best versions of ourselves in real time, but that's not always possible because, you know, we're messy, we're humans. And I want to talk more about art. I want to talk more about how you see your work in the world. When I came across your book, The Lynchpin, back in 2009, I was boxed into a linear life. You know, you get a job, you move up in the ranks, maybe get the corner office, and you slave away and hope that you don't get fired. It's amazing how just a few sentences in a book can change the trajectory of our lives. I stumbled on this quote, art isn't only a painting. Art is anything that's creative, passionate, and personal. 
Great art resonates with the viewer, not only with the creator. Art is a personal gift that changes the recipient. The medium doesn't matter, the intent does. This definition lit me up, and it really goes to show that artists are made, not born, when they view themselves through a lens that lights them up. This goes to the point that you should choose work in the world that aligns with who you're meant to be. But this is emotionally difficult because you're not just showing up as a cog in the wheel. You're alive, and when you're alive, you create art. And you sometimes forget the last names of people on the stage. (laughs) So this is a two-parted question. How has art changed over the years and how will it continue to change? And what does this mean for the artists who create things in the noisy online world? Well, can I ask you a question first? Sure. When you say become who you were meant to be, what do you mean? Become who your soul wants you to evolve into. So you and I can diverge on this and that's fine. Yeah. I just wanted to to figure it out. So let me answer your questions first, and then I'll weave that part in. Sure. Before we had cameras and recording devices, art wasn't a job, mostly, but it was a really useful way to record the present. And rich people used it all the time. But there's something that's called art now, that has nothing to do with that. So when you see a nurse in a pediatric oncology ward doing more than their job and comforting somebody, I think that's art because an AI can't do that and somebody who's only following a manual can't do that. They're expending a form of emotional labor, doing something that might not work, showing up in a place where they might be needed and might not. We'll find out soon. Uh, And I think it's art when you go out on a limb and make a podcast about something that you're interested in without being able to accurately proclaim that you are the world's expert in it. Because your exploration is this generous act of turning lights on for other people. So I'm going to call that art. And I differentiate art from painting because painting is a totally different thing. And I differentiate it from commerce because most of the stuff we buy is stuff we bought before. So I don't really look for art when I buy a bag of brown rice. I just want brown rice that's as delicious as the last bag. But I do look for art if Neil Gaiman writes a new book, because I can't read Neil Gaiman's old book again and get the same experience. I need a new book that's going to take me to a new place. And there is room for cogs in the system. But what the internet has done is made it so that the cheapest cog and the most compliant cog and the fastest cog get the gigs. So if that's you, go do it. But if it's not you, then you have to dance with the fear and do the other thing. But in terms of what your soul wants you to be, the deal for me is either you're a professional or you're not. And if you're a professional, it means you make promises and you keep them. And you don't spend any time at all thinking about authenticity. And you don't spend any time at all thinking about your calling. If you seek to serve people, find some people who need to be served and serve them in a way that makes a difference. So when my kids were very young, one of them had a garbage party. And the garbage men came and let him play with the the levers and stuff like that. That's not their job, but it's a lesson, a memory that lasts for decades. And I don't think those men would tell you that it's uh, their soul's calling to be 
refuse collectors. I think they would tell you that the chance to engage as humans is priceless and they're glad they get to do it. Okay, so let's unpack that a bit. That was an interesting answer. You describe art as the generous act of turning lights on for people. The way that I look at it as like there are different layers of this. And when I said that it, it aligns with who your soul is, it means on like a deep visceral way. And I'm studying exploring consciousness and there are different layers of consciousness. So I guess my question wasn't meant for people who see themselves as a cog in the wheel. And, and maybe this is getting a little metaphysical. But if you apply your sole mission to your work in the world, is there a way that you can deliver it in a way that steps away from that machine-driven or autopilot that elevates the conversation? Well, I guess the way I look at it is some people say everything happens for a reason. And my take is everything happens, and then we make up a reason. And we're little uh, Skinner pigeons, always looking for the dopamine hit, always looking to avoid the thing we fear or don't like. So if you train yourself to be thrilled and excited by helping people level up, you'll want to do that more. If you train yourself to relish the safety that you get from doing what you did yesterday, you'll do that more. And this is culture that does this, not our genes, not a little homunculus inside us, but culture. What we're raised with, how we surround ourselves, what habits that we build. And so I don't think that the people in New York in December who run 20 miles in the rain actually enjoy it. I think they love the habit. I think they love the fact that they train themselves to have this habit, and it's satisfying to keep the habit going. And good for them, because they found their <laughs> thing. And if you want your thing to be the thing you also make a living at, then what you do as a professional is find people who will gladly trade their money for the work you want to do. And if there's someone who won't trade their money for the work you want to do, then it's not for them. So this comes down to the emotional layers of fear. And in your interview with Tim Ferriss, you say that there's a thrill to dancing with an existential crisis. You're someone that does not play the game of comfort, but at the same time, you've already built your empire. What do you say to those entrepreneurs who are also addicted to this existential roller coaster, but still need to have health insurance and provide for their families and be really three-dimensional, practical, reality-driven in their approach to life? Okay, well, I was making a point about people who have succeeded financially who are still playing the high-stakes game. Those people, if they're enjoying it, they should keep doing it, mm -hmm. right? Jeff Bezos loves what he does. The fact that he's the richest man in the world is irrelevant. He is not trying to be more the richest man in the world. He actually loves what he does. That thrill, the leverage, the endorphins, that's what he does. I decided not to do that a long time ago. And that's fine too, but it's a choice. Now, if you are upcoming, your narrative, about your entrepreneurial journey is going to be way more dominant in your endorphin rushes than the journey itself. That the narrative that we create for ourselves, that it's an emergency, that we have to get back to work, that we have to control this, that we have to check our email at three o'clock in the morning, right? Well, 
Nothing will be different if you check your email at 4 o'clock in the morning. Nothing. You are checking your email at 3 o'clock in the morning because it gives you pleasure, not because it can't wait. And what the social media guys have done and Apple has done is created these little boxes in our pocket that push us to be uncomfortable unless we're using them. And that's because it makes them money to do that, not because it's what we wanted all along. Of course. Absolutely. So going back to your answer where you were talking about Jeff Bezos, I just have to wonder, why didn't you want to go that route that Bezos went? Well, when I built Yo-Yo Dine, it was thrilling. I had 75 employees and 50 of them were direct reports. And everyone had a question. Everyone had a problem I could solve. We were on the tightrope. I once went to three different states in one day to raise money to keep us from going out of business. We were regularly within weeks of missing payroll, but we ended up building a profitable internet company in 1998 when no one had a profitable internet company. And we did work that we were proud of. And I spent my days with people I really cared about. And after I sold the company, I had a chance to do it again. And I thought about my priorities. And I thought about, well, if you do it a second time, then you're just committing to do it forever because it's your thing. And I decided that I wanted to be a different kind of professional than that, that I might have had the skill to be that kind of high stakes entrepreneur. But I also felt like I had something to offer as somebody who did a different kind of shipping of a different kind of work where keeping track of a P&L wasn't the point. So that doesn't mean no one should do it. Lots of people should do it. I just decided having done it and having made it work, I didn't need to do it. You have to be pretty visionary to know not to go the route that everyone else is going. Being a high stakes entrepreneur, you did that once and you decided you didn't want to do it again. And you mentioned a different kind of shipping. Uh, Let's unpack that a bit. How do you ship differently than a high stakes entrepreneur? You write a lot about the philosophy of marketing. And and I really want to unpack that a little bit. How do you see your path as maybe what you're here on this planet Earth and what you're meant to be doing in this world? Okay. So who owns you? The minute you raise equity in your company, you have promised an investor you're going to build something big, sell it, and give them back more than they gave you. The minute you have regular customers, you are promising them that you will regularly exceed their expectations about what you sold them. The minute you have large teams of people who work for you, who have families and who have mortgages, you've made a promise to them. And so what happens is high-stakes entrepreneurs at scale are working for all of those constituencies all the time. And if they're going to do a good job, they have to be really clear about why they're doing it and for who they are doing it. So I've done a bunch of projects with Amazon back in the day, and Amazon was very proud of the fact that they wanted to be the best place for a shopper to engage with online, and they regularly win every single study, J.D. Power, et cetera. They also said they wanted to be the best place for an employee to be able to achieve professional goals and to accumulate wealth. And they said they wanted to be the best place for their uh, AWS customers and online services 
to work. And so far, no conflicts between any of those three. And so they could ratchet and ratchet and ratchet all three. The questions start to kick in when conflicts occur. So for example, when you bring the Alexa to the world, the question is, should Alexa maximize profit or should Alexa maximize satisfaction for the user? What if the user is five years old and doesn't have any money? What does the shareholder want? What rewards the employee? What rewards the customer? And when those things start to conflict, it gets harder and harder to be a whole person as an entrepreneur. And so I think a big choice we have to make, and we have to make it when we're a little fish, not a big fish, is what promises are we making and who are we making? I love that answer. That's really visionary approach to life, always asking yourself the important, meaningful questions. Um, Let's talk about publishing, something that you have tons of experience with. I had a lot of luck with my first book, and I self-published. And I'm writing my second book now, and there's a battle going on in my head between the traditional gatekeepers who seem to have authority and quote-unquote credibility versus self-expression and freedom. You advise authors that unless you can get an advance of $100,000, you should self-publish. What advice can you give to authors out there who may want to be generous and self-publish on a Kindle, yet they really, really love that cash advance? Oh, okay. So a couple of things. First of all, I don't think you got lucky with your first book. I think you got skill oh, you. with your first book, if that's an expression. Thank you. Uh, so congratulations. Publishing is not printing. Publishing is the act of taking a financial risk to bring a new idea to people who, if they hear about the new idea, will pay money for it. That's publishing. So publishing and printing used to be the same thing because the only way to do that was to print a book. But now with the Kindle, not so true. What we also know is that between the Kindle and the audiobook for nonfiction, that might be as many as two-thirds of all the sales. And we also know that print-on-demand is something that's acceptable to most people outside the publishing industry in terms of quality, which means that the financial risks are significantly lower. If I add to that the fact that the vast majority of nonfiction books in the United States are sold by one company, a company that doesn't even want you to send 10,000 copies to them, and that the number of PR opportunities that's available are close to zero because there is no Newsweek and Time isn't going to write about books and there is no book section in that paper or this paper and Oprah doesn't matter anymore because she's not on the air. You add it all up, the book publisher and the work they used to do on behalf of the author, has dramatically shifted. The second thing, though, is the advance. What's it for? What does it mean? Well, if you're using the publisher as a bank and you can get a really significant advance, then your customer is the publisher, and the publisher's customer is the bookstore. So the readers are third. And if you're okay with that, then that works as well. Now, here I am, I'm a hypocrite, because my new book came out with Penguin Random House, one of the biggest publishers in the world, and I did it for a very specific reason, and it wasn't to make the most money, and it wasn't even to sell the most books, because I am pretty confident that if I had pushed this out in the world as a Kindle-only book with an audio book, and I had charged much less money, and I had made a bigger hype and commotion about it, I might have been able to sell more books. No, the reason I went with a real publisher is because I've been working with Adrian 
for 20 years and I wanted to get back to work. So I gave him my manuscript and said, you've got people, you figure out how to do your craft because I know how to do this craft, but I don't want to spend all my time doing this craft because I've done it before and I trust you. And that worked, right? And so what I guess what I'm saying is what you really need to do if you want to get started as an author is you need to build an asset. And the asset is trust and attention. The asset is permission. The asset is who would miss you if you were gone. How many people can you send a note to and they'll open it and they'll read it. And you need to do that for five years before you write your book. And if five years into it, there are 20,000 people who are eager for you to write your book, then you can make a smart decision about whether or not you want to publish it or not. So it comes down to building your audience based off trust and integrity versus outsourcing to the bigger publishers. Well, no, because here's the deal. It's really, really, really unlikely, three reallys, that a publisher will make you famous. That J.K. Rowling is a great counterexample. The publisher made J.K. Rowling famous. But it, particularly in the nonfiction space, it's not the way it works. You know, Ray Dalio's probably spent a million dollars promoting his book, and still most of the people listening to this have never read it. That you need to be famous, and then the publisher might help you with some transactions. But they're not going to hurt your integrity. They're not going to make you write a bad book. They will actually give you credibility and freedom and push you to make an even better book. And the people in book publishing generally more than almost any industry I can think of, are good people. That's not the question. The question is, what's the book for? And if the purpose of the book is to get an idea into people's hands, well, then maybe it should be a free PDF, right? And if the purpose of the book is to make you money, well, maybe you should be doing a different kind of work to make you money. If the purpose of the book is to create an artifact, that can stand the test of time, no batteries required, and that you want it in libraries and that you want it to become a textbook, well, then maybe you need a real publisher. So we just first got to get really clear about what it's for. And then we got to think hard about the siren call of the advance because it's generally an ego thing, not an actual dollars and cents thing for most authors. You've adopted a practice of intentionally seeking out things that you were wrong about. You talk about how this flips the brain, which is essential to creativity in our revolutionary times. It seems like you cast a wide net of ideas, and you may be not always agreeing with your original opinion. It seems like you're the type of person that's pretty extreme in that you have a philosophy of life that you distribute across all different areas in your life. So does this confuse people who are closest to you, or do they understand that you're an explorer of ideas and different beliefs? Oh, even my dog is confused <laughs> by me, Jessica. You know, that once you feel the feeling of what it sounds like to change your mind, it's sort of addictive. Many, many years ago, I had this significant crackling in my ears, and it was bothering me all the time. I would move my jaw, and crackling would happen. I went to the ear, nose, and throat hospital, told them what was up, and they said, well, take these decongestants. And I did, and they totally knocked me out. And so for a week, I was asleep. And the crackling mostly went away. But when I stopped taking it, the crackling came back. And I went to them and I said, the crackling came back. And I said, well, what does it 
mean for the crackling to start? And I showed them how I moved my jaw, and they said, don't do that. And as soon as I stopped moving my jaw, the crackling went away. And I just made it come back now for the first time in like <laughs> 10 years. I just moved my jaw that way. Just don't do that. If the crackling bothers you, don't move your jaw that way, right? So I don't make the crackling anymore. Instead, what I do is I explore the edges for that feeling. What does it feel like to make an assertion and then realize you were wrong and do the opposite? That feeling feels great to me. I really like exploring where does fact and philosophy and culture interact. And if it's not for you, then don't do it. But what a time we live in where we're not sitting in the rain uh, outdoors wondering if we're going to survive till tomorrow morning, but instead have this massive supercomputer that gives us access to all known knowledge of human history, and we can explore. I love that. I can't believe I get paid to do that. <laughs> I love that you laughed at that because I think any creative person out there loves that feeling. And I think we're addicted to it. At least I am. I'm very addicted to exploring topics or facts that I don't necessarily agree with, but I'm just curious what it what it would be like if I did go down that rabbit hole. Do you regularly have to be mindful of your lizard brain or have you developed such a clear, consistent practice that you don't come across your lizard brain anymore? Oh, no, it's there every day if I'm doing good work. The um, As I've gotten older, there are things where I'm just certain based on facts, based on experience, where I'm right. And so it's harder to explore certain areas. I am not open-minded about whether people should get a measles vaccine or not. I'm, I have no interest in exploring why someone would say that people should not get a measles vaccine. That's just mm -hmm. nonsense. It's dangerous. It doesn't make any sense. It's based on ignorance. I am interested in why they are ignorant. I am interested in why they are expressing their fear in this way. Mm -hmm. But I have to wrestle with you know, the whole idea that the status quo is permanent. Because it, you know, like when I think about things like AI, when I think about things like what we will do when we hear from intelligent life in faraway places, that's super fascinating science fiction stuff, except it's happening. And not the aliens yet, but it will. And so I want to be ready and, and flexible enough to imagine where that could lead. And so I, I work on that. But the lizard brain thing is simple. It's just basic chemistry. When you are afraid, when cultural memes show up that cause fear, the chemistry in your amygdala goes haywire, takes over all conscious thinking in your brain, and you can't stop it. It's going to kick in. That's not the question. The question is, what should you do after that? And it's responding, not reacting, that matters so much in that case. So you say that you are exploring where technology will take us in the future. What are you finding, and how is that affecting your current work, and how will it affect your future work? Well, you know, Kevin Kelly wrote a great book, if you're interested in this, called What Technology Wants. He argues that technology is a species, like roaches or people, and it is evolving faster than any other species, and it uses us to get to where it's going. The problem we really have right now is that when technology meets profit, it evolves in really dangerous directions. 
And it's interesting to think about what happens when we start to divide the two. So Wikipedia has no profit. It's just technology. Uh, when we think about what happens when people start using gene uh, therapies in ways that they're not doing it to make a profit, but are doing it to make a difference, uh, how does that counter the whole idea of you know creating sterile seeds that are sterile just so that the person who made the seeds can make more money? So it's going to be a really interesting thing to think about who goes first and which way it goes as those two things wrestle. Wow, that's such an interesting premise that technology is a species and it uses us to get where it's going. Do you necessarily believe that? Yeah, there's not, it doesn't mean it's really a species the way we think of species, but it meets most of our standards for, so it, the whole thing started with Dawkins. Richard Dawkins wrote a book with a really terrible title that's totally misunderstood called The Selfish Gene. It's not about being selfish at all. And there's a chapter in the book where he was riffing. And he said, what happens if we think of ideas as a version of genes? Let's call them memes. So he coined that term. And memes reproduce, they spread, they go extinct, they evolve, they infect other things, and around and around they go. So I wrote a book about memes called Unleashing the Idea Virus, and I went deep into that rabbit hole. So once you start thinking of memes as genes, it all makes a lot of sense. Well, go one step further and start realizing that memes sit right next to technology, and it too is meeting and matching many of Darwin's rules as it evolves at breakneck speed in whichever direction. Wow. Yeah, I can talk hours about this stuff. I nerd out on this all the time. So it really comes down to being more human when we are faced with technology at our fingertips at every second. How do we, as human beings living in a very technological world, how do we stay human and stay present in a world that is so focused on taking us away from our humanity? Well, I don't think this is new. I just think it's shinier and a little bit more weaponized that we've always had a culture that pushes us to become what we might not want to be in the moment. And what it means to be a brave person is to push back. So Shirley Jackson, you know, with her great short story, The Lottery, about people being stoned to death. Some people threw the first stone. Some people threw the 10th stone. Some people didn't throw a stone at all. And culture works overtime to push us in a given direction. But the brave thing to do is come back to first principles. Who am I trying to change? What work am I trying to do? Own the responsibility for that. It's not up to the cosmos. It's not up to some woo-woo in the sky. It's up to you. What are you responsible for? What are you trying to do here? What change are you seeking to make? And if you can own that, then you can decide if something's helping you or not. Whenever I say the word culture, I like to spell it out with C-U-L-T-U-R-A, just because the culture is a cult. It's a form of a cult. Wherever you are, it's driving you to not necessarily always do things that you are aligned with. So I think it's important to recognize that. Well said. One more question for you that you mentioned earlier, the idea that will your work be missed when you're gone? This is something that drives you. And I think when you say it, it really drives a lot of people. So I'd love my listeners to hear how you really thread this 
question through your life and how listeners can do the same. Okay. So I mean it in a super simple way. It has nothing to do with being dead at all, (laughs) right? It just means, did you make a promise such that if you didn't show up tomorrow to keep the promise, people would miss you? So if you go to a store that used to be open seven days a week and you get there and the store is closed, you would miss it. On the other hand, if the store on the way that you never once stopped at went out of business, you wouldn't miss it. So what we're talking about is super simple. It is, who are you making promises to? What does it mean to keep those promises? And would they miss you if you were gone? Meaning, if you didn't show up, if you didn't send that email blast, if you didn't write that piece of copy, if you didn't blah, 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 would people say, where is it? Because that's an excellent standard for choosing to matter. Seth, thank you so much for joining me on The Art of Humanity. Where can listeners go to find you and all of your work online? I've tried to put it in one convenient place at seths.blog, where you can type Seth into Google. And if you go to seths.blog slash T-I-M, you can read about the new book. Thank you so much for joining me. This was great, Jessica. Thank you. Wow, I'm still pinching myself from this interview. I love what Seth says about my industry. The industry that I'm in is content marketing with a capital C and a capital M. And I think it's so important for people who are running an advertising or marketing agency where content marketing may be an add-on to hear this. Content marketing is not the BuzzFeed magic formula to connive people to get their attention for not much of an exchange. Content marketing is the content of what we do. It's the meat or the essence of the change that we make. The spin and hype is not marketing. Content marketing becomes meaningful when you have conversations that connect and add context. People get screamed at all day long. Driving to work, the radio nudges you to visit www.whateveritis.com. Infomercials tell you, wait, there's more. Even Starbucks, the only quiet time of day, forces you to download the latest song. The constant noise becomes hype. And what is hype? Unnecessary screaming. We may hear the screaming, but we may not listen to what it's saying. The differentiator in a message is content marketing when done right. It whispers softly. It stands out from the noise. Because what happens when you hear a whisper? Your ears perk up. I also love what Seth says about becoming a happier freelancer. You cannot work more hours. The only way to do it is to get better clients. If you get better clients, you'll do better work. And you'll do better work on behalf of clients that you actually believe in. So simple. So important. I've been into Seth's work for over a decade, and one of the many things I love is that he, and this is my interpretation of his work, he transforms the consciousness of the masculine. What do I even mean by that? Well, I'm going to explain this through a website that I found, masteringalchemy.com. They discuss the concept of geometry and how the masculine energy is made up of straight lines and angles, whereas feminine energy is made up of curves and swirls. There are no straight lines in feminine energy, and there are no curves and swirls in masculine. Feminine energy is expansive, creative, and fluid. Masculine energy is more of a straight line. It goes from point A to point B to point C and back again. Both types of creative energy are absolutely valuable to have at your access for balanced creations. 
Yes, Seth Godin is a man, and he explores where fact, philosophy, and culture intersect. But inherent in his work is a fluid and expansive energy. His philosophy around permission marketing is about asking rather than forcing. His philosophy around content marketing is about the essence around the change that we make. The transformation and the journey is always more spectacular than those BuzzFeed headlines or egometrics. And I think the world loves Seth's work so much because it's fluid yet logical, expansive yet practical. And I think deep down, we're all craving more meaning and purpose today. He describes the softer side of marketing and culture, the alignment instead of the hustle, which is so, so needed today. Anyway, if you made it this far to the end of the interview, thank you so much. I have so much gratitude for you. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back next week. Feel free to hop on over to my podcast website, artofhumanity.io, for show notes or past interviews. Or you can message me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Jessica Ann, and my handle starts with an I. It's at I-T-S-J-E-S-S-I-C-A-N-N. I'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you've learned from this episode, and I'll be sure to get in touch with you. If you really love this podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on iTunes right now and left a review. It helps way more than you know. Let's get the Art of Humanity movement going. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode, evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Listen, explore, evolve. I'm Jessica Ann.